everyone and welcome to Rad Chat. So welcome to podcast number 25. My name's Jane McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow host, Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hello. A big thank you to our last guest, Professor Heidi Prost, who discussed her career, research and why the patient's voice is so important. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go on, take a listen. It's a really great one. So we are really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Ben Potts. Ben's going to be discussing neurodiversity within radio radiography. So welcome, Ben. Hi, hi, pleasure to be here. Um, thanks so much for asking me. You know, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm uh, I'm honoured. Ah, oh, that's lovely. I I do. It is great when you start to have some real actual followers yeah. that um, constantly tweet and engage with social media. It's really nice and it's reassuring for us as well. So thank you so much, Ben. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. So, I know Naaman and I know you, but would you like to introduce yourself for the audience and talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing at the moment, what your career pathway's been to date? Yeah, um, so I think my pathway into radiography might be the strangest one, or at least the most convoluted. Um, so I started, so I'm a mature student, I'm 31. Um, I started my studies when I was 20 in music technology. So not related to radiography at all. Um, and then that progressed into kind of somewhere between music and contemporary art. And um, yeah, so I did that, I did that, I studied that. And then I had a period of illness, um, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, and uh, I was quite ill for a while. And during that time I was also um, caring for my grandmother as well. Um, and I just, had this this desire to want to get into healthcare um something was i think someone had been there from when i was young but it, it was a uh, it was very clear at the time um and i was looking down the list of healthcare professions and i didn't really want to do nursing it's only that straight away and then i looked down the ahp list um and radiography just stuck out to me because I've, I've had some chest x-rays before and it just seemed like a really good uh really good mix of the like, the technology side that I'd done before with music tech and and then obviously I wanted to get into patient care and, and that side of stuff so it was really good stuck out to me straight away um and yeah now I'm a second year radiography student diagnostic radiography at Birmingham City um I'm the vice chair of the Society of Radiography Student Representative Forum and I also do a bit of work with uh, Health Education England on their AHP uh, placement uh, advisory board, which is looking to expand capacity and placement. Amazing. So Ben, you've already achieved so much and you're <laughs> literally been in the profession two years. So that's amazing. Um, it was really interesting, actually, that you commented on using the prospectus and kind of looking down. It is, it is still something that people actively do to look for careers. Yeah. And it is so important, isn't it, that the information that's presented there it's almost enticing. I always, I always think, you know, when people go, oh, you know, there's lots of projects we could do to promote different professions or AHPs. I do always say, yes, absolutely amazing. You can't kind of relax and just expect people to come into the profession. But I am also really aware of how much people use prospectuses um, and maybe online prospectus and UCAS. And did you look specifically at a university? Did you know you wanted to study close to home? Uh, not particularly. No, I was looking just at the professions, and and what what's involved. You know, how, how, 
what skills do you need and and really I was thinking about how much patient care is involved as well because um, I knew I wanted to do that but I didn't want to go kind of it, do too too much into it like nursing so yeah that's why I was looking for like a, a Goldilocks uh, profession where it was just right for me um, and and then yeah once I kind of decided radiography and, and I wanted to do diagnostic it was then like looking well where where do they do it near me um, you know and, yeah. and I was really lucky that Birmingham City do it which is very close to me so I was gonna say you are very lucky <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so Ben I know everyone is gonna expect me to ask this question but why didn't you choose therapeutic <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I think I think what initially put me off, I think, was probably uh, the difficulty of it, like the, with seeing patients that were going through some very hard times. I mean, obviously, yeah. you, you get that in diagnostic as well, but perhaps to a lesser extent, you know, because you also get people that, you also get children that have said that they've hurt the finger at school so they can get a day off, which they probably haven't hurt the finger at all. You know, so it, it's it. You know, you get some lighter stuff as well. I think that was the deciding factor for me. So Ben, a, a little birdie told me that you've actually got a PhD already. So have you? Uh, what kind of study have you done previously to doing this? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I started off with a bachelor's of, of music technology, um, and that was. I started off playing drums. That was my entrance into music tech. I was just started uh, learning drums from a child from like age ten, um, and as I got into uni, uh, into the course, I got more and more into the electronic side and uh, production and programming and all that kind of side of music tech, um, and and I ended up getting a scholarship then to study uh, computer music, which is like electronic music but a bit more arty. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that was a PhD, uh, and my PhD was kind of mixed between contemporary art and uh, uh, electronic music, and also a bit of audiology thrown in as well. So it's really um, a lot of RT PhDs are very hard to explain exactly what they're <laughs> what they're about. I think with like science ones, you have you have like a you know a, a distinct research question that you're looking at, whereas uh, art ones can be a bit more uh, rambly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, do you go into clinical and go, uh, I'm Dr. Ben Potts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have had people ask me, because, you know, when they see a mature student in, in departments, they want to ask straight away, what did you do before? You know, what are you doing here? Yeah. Um, and so people have asked me and I've said, like, oh, yeah, I've done a PhD. And then people are kind of like, well, what, what are you doing here? Like, you've, you've almost like, um, you've already cracked it. You've done a PhD in music. Like, you know, what... what <laughs> You've won. You've won life. What? Why? What, what are you doing in NHS? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, p people do ask, but I I don't really use the title really now because it doesn't really having to do with what I'm doing at the moment. Um, yeah. But I only use it for like Amazon deliveries and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm admiral, admiral on our uh, <laughs> on our Amazon. So yeah, you can you can get all sorts on there, can't you? You can yeah. select, but yeah, entertaining. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you said about the difference between diagnostic and therapeutic, Ben. So obviously, as you said, for us, it can be a bit heavier, but I suppose with your experience of working in A&E and stuff, you do still get some of that heavy element, I suppose, but in more of a multidisciplinary way, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's, I shouldn't really like make light of it because there, obviously there is some very serious stuff going on and, you know, you are involved in patients 
they're often in the worst time of their life, you know, and um, and especially in A and E because they're straight in, and you're often not not far off the first person they see, you know, because as soon as the doctors see them and kind of forming some kind of idea of what's going on, they want to image them and 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 you know confirm diagnosis. So yeah, there is lots of there is lots of heavier stuff, but um, I think yeah, it's just it's just the, the mix, and you never know really what you're going to get is is a big pull for me. Yeah, I, I bet. And I suppose so coming on to sort of stuff that you're on or involved in at the moment, um, I know you put a post out uh, via Twitter, so around neurodiversity. Um, I think you're working with a couple of people around this, but what is neurodiversity? Uh, so, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's like a whole so- social movement. Um, and it's it's the removal of, of differences like uh, autism or ADHD or dyslexia dyspraxia from like the med- medical model where their pathologies and their um, illnesses and and it's it's more exploring uh, the idea that we're just diverse and people have different just as people have different you know um, um, color skin or different um, different heights or you know it's it, there's a there's a wide diversity of different people and the same thing goes for their brains um, so there's a there's this is basically it's a social movement that um is is kind of putting it back into empowering people to uh think of it more as as uh as as a difference rather than a, a difficulty a disability although there are of course different difficulties and disabilities involved with being neurodiverse but it's not they're not they're, they're emphasizing also the positives so for example someone that's dyslexic might struggle with spelling but then also might have amazing problem solving skills, which they wouldn't have if they wasn't dyslexic. So it, it's not only viewing the world as, as diverse, but also emphasising the positives, which people often don't think about. Um, and some, some key terms that have, are in the movement, um, there's neurotypical, which is the, the majority group and what society deems as normal. And there's neurodivergent, which is the minority group, which have brains that function difficult different different differently um, and then there's uh, neuro neuro minorities which uh, a lot of lot of um, writers and papers use as a, a term to represent what the medical model would call conditions so autism and uh, dyslexia etc um, and it, it's it's a, a way of as well like being social movement and getting some kind of traction behind it it's kind of bringing a lot of awareness about different social minorities as well um, so there's lots of uh, misconceptions, I think, in the mainstream public and through the media about, for example, like ADHD just being a thing that naughty children get, naughty little boys get. Whereas, because um, that was my, that was, if to be honest, that was my uh, view like a couple of years ago. It was, it was just uh, for naughty little boys and, you know, it, it's something they grow out of or they get medicated for it. And then there's a the whole media thing about them turning to zombies you know, medicating kids and all that kind of stuff um, and I think this whole movement is bring more awareness of people you know that ADHD is such a wide uh, ranging thing that can affect people of all different genders and um, races and also uh, ages you know it's, it can be an adult thing as well and it is in my case yeah it's very interesting lots of different terms there um, and I think to be honest I hadn't really come across the term neurodiversity before 
Um, so just with a bit of research from what I saw, it did start up or it was first sort of talked about in, I think, 1999 by someone called Judy Singer, um, who started championing it. And I um, yeah, she described herself as um, somewhere on the autistic scale, which is something I've heard kind of fly around in a joking manner quite a lot, I think, mm. uh, with friends and stuff like that. But And then she, just another quote that she said, which really stuck with me, that it's not possible to separate the person from the autism. I think exactly as you said, that's a really good way to look at neurodiversity as kind of a celebration of individuality rather than just something that needs to be fixed. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think it's uh, interesting you said about the it's somewhere on the scale and, and people using that as like a, a jokey thing because people use the term autistic as as like a almost like a slur or or a negative thing whereas you know you can see on twitter people use the hashtag actually autistic which is kind of differentiating themselves from that and saying you know i am actually autistic this is not a kind of a a, a, a slur or a slang thing to say um so yeah it, it's it's it, i think i think it's it's kind of exciting the way it's going at the moment because it, it, there's so many awesome communities on on twitter and on um reddit that support networks that people never you know never would have had this before and so not only is the knowledge about it growing but also the support around it is growing as well ben obviously i don't know what your experiences have been but i've i've got a 10 year old he's at school at the moment and he is interacting with students um that are neurodiverse um and it is really important i think from that really fundamental age and their level of education to really support the conversations that people have you know I know for a fact that my son's come home and said oh that naughty child but I know it I know it's because he's got autism and you know there is there is we really do unpick that at home and we do go through well he isn't naughty then is he and it is so important I think sometimes the role of educators in schools um, especially in primary schools where you do start to get to that kind of stage where you are essentially fundamentally developing stereotypical views um, and I think it is it is really nice in some respects because I know from when I went to school it was just nothing that anyone would necessarily speak about and it is nice that you are getting younger students who are being diagnosed and they are openly communicating and talking about it and educating the other students do you feel that's something that should be actively encouraged? Um, I'm just thinking not necessarily even within healthcare, but also education. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, 100%. Um, I mean, when I was at school, I don't think anyone ever talked about it. I mean, you know, it's in the 90s. Uh, it, it was, uh, you know, my, my parents never had the conversation um, about it with any of the teachers. No one, no one expected it in me. No one... Uh, and then yeah i didn't even know anything about it and i think i think it's definitely getting better now um uh but you know there's still lots of teachers and educators that don't know enough about it um not just as 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 a way to diagnose it and to spot it but also know enough about like you say the stereotypical stuff you know that there's teachers that are just assume that it's you know it's naughty kids and and it's almost like there's a conspiracy like i don't believe in it you know it's it's a quite shocking but i think as definitely as time is going on it's getting better and better and it's actually the children that are getting better not the educators 
um, you know, they get the they're just the generation now of, of young people that are so much more socially aware, and it's really encouraging that you know it's getting a lot better than the times that I had at school where, you know, I had uh, one teacher before uh, when I was in year four, so I don't I can't remember how how old you'd be in year four, but I remember it being year four, and um, I would never ever do like do the work any writing you know we'd sit down and write poem or whatever it was going to be and i would end up just walking around the class and not doing any of it and i remember like those times like looking at the end with the bells going and look at my page there's nothing on there um so one time he he said um right no one in the class can leave until ben has done a page so they got the whole class then like it starts off with them cheering and 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 you know having a laugh and then as time's going on and i'm writing nothing's really coming out and i can't think of anything to write then they're getting more and more frustrated and it and it's turned into like a you know a very unpleasant situation i mean like to teach us to do that then was was like a you know normal thing it was just like encouraging me to write kind of thing but i think now that kind of thing would never happen um so it's definitely improving um but it just needs to improve faster i think yeah yeah and i think also as well just from personal experience it's having the diagnostic pathways for some children as well so if parents or educators think that there is potential that children might need support for any kind of learning difficulty um it's about maybe having those resources available to go down that diagnostic pathway and waiting lists at the moment i know from sheffield at two years um before you even necessarily get a diagnosis if there is a diagnosis to be had before you even then go on to a waiting list potentially for treatment or support or referral that is a long time when a student potentially could be struggling, um, especially as part of kind of that fundamental age where they are transitioning to secondary school. It, it can be really, I would imagine, worrying from parent and also student perspective. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think there's lots we can do, lots of investment. We always say, don't we, about everything to do with the NHS. Unfortunately, it needs investment, doesn't it? But there's Absolutely. a there's a really shocking paper that was written this year um about adhd and it, it's it's basically got like every charity to do with adhd all the experts in adhd they've all like co-authored this paper and it just outlined exactly what you say the long waiting lists and the impacts of that on people and uh basically like all the health impacts people have for being undiagnosed and untreated adhd um and mm-hmm. the difference it can make if you get the right treatment the right diagnosis and then the right medication if that's that's the route you want to go down um and it's yeah it's, it's, it's a terrible read to, to know that that's happening now in 2021 and yeah, yeah I, I i i tried to get referred to get diagnosed i'm not even actually you know like get a diagnosis but just to have an appointment to then get referred to maybe get diagnosed and that was like a six yeah. month wait just for that appointment so yeah it's yeah. it is it's shocking but you know so ben you've kind of touched on your story a little bit but are you happy to kind of fill us in on on your experience? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so I've I've uh, as I said, like had trouble in primary school. Um, I was just a kid that was I was never naughty in in a nasty way, but I would never do the work, and I'd always be chatting and walking around the room and doing anything other than what the teacher <laughs> had asked. Um, and from from that age then from about year four uh, onwards I had private tuition at home um, because I just wasn't hitting any of the any of the marks for you know, development um, and that continued right up to GCSE um, I, you know, I had a private tutor for GCSEs as well and 
eventually I managed to get out with with mostly C's, just about you know skin of my teeth kind of thing, um, and uh, that that kind of, kind of was left as a as a oh well you know it kind of got over it kind of thing like no one ever really talked about that and I talked about my parents now and they kind of think oh yeah there might be something there, <laughs> um, but yeah so I I did my first degree did my bachelor's degree, and then as I was embarking on my PhD. Uh, I started thinking I must have seen somewhere maybe on TV or something about about dyslexia, and I looked down my grades and all the creative stuff, all the uh, composition and uh, musical stuff and programming stuff was was like high grades first and stuff, and then all the writing part of it was all like two twos and um, and lower, and just kind of clicked that something's not 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 quite right there, so I I went to the university and the difference between the two systems is like because dyslexia is classed as a uh, a learning disability or, or difference rather than a, a medical thing so you can get assessed through universities and the university will fund it um, so I got assessed got yeah and then I had moderate to severe dyslexia and it kind of clicked that you know all this all my life story up till then that you know it, it uh, was life-changing to to know that a lot of things wasn't my fault that you know I wasn't trying hard enough or I wasn't um, it wasn't it wasn't me not putting the work in. It was to do with you know just the way that my brain works, and you know that helped me a lot. Accepting myself um, was a big thing, you know. Uh, and then as I went on, I like I say I had a, a quite a big spell of mental health issues that uh, knocked me out for a, like a year, a year pretty much. And it was during that time talking to a psychologist, um, a psychiatrist, uh, that suggested ADHD could be a, a factor in it. Because I'd always had these problems with depression and anxiety, but never could put my finger on the root of it. What what was what was the issue? Um, and so yeah, we found. Uh, I went to get a an a, eventually, an ADHD uh, diagnosis, and yeah, that's been that's that was in June this year. So yeah, I got diagnosed with dyslexia at twenty three, and ADHD at thirty one, and yeah, this is this has been a huge uh, life changing thing as well because suddenly all these things in my life kind of click every decision i've made has has been informed by that and you learn so much about yourself and as i say the, the self-acceptance has been a huge thing realizing my strengths my weaknesses and being okay with the fact that some things i can't do as well as others and that's just me and that's okay and not to beat yourself up about it or get anxious about it and other things i can do better than some other people perhaps you know and just accept yourself and that's been it's basically been life-changing yeah Thank you for sharing your experience, Ben. I mean, it sounds quite challenging and I suppose being an adult and figuring this out, as you said, that kind of, it all clicks and you understand all of your movements and your thoughts and your decisions. It's quite a lot to go through. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yes, yes, it has been a, but I think, you know, it's a common story, people getting diagnosed later in life and, and you know, this whole, uh, this whole groups on social media that just talk about that sort of thing. Because you know it is, it is, it's very, it's kind of bittersweet because you look back and everything about your life makes sense and and you can understand it and you like I say you can accept yourself and kind of give yourself a break. But then also it's it's bitter because you're looking back and thinking if I knew earlier what would have done differently and what would have been would have changed. But I mean you can't think like that because otherwise you'd never never leave the house, would you? <laughs> no, no. And it's it's interesting what you said. Um, so just did a bit of research there was a paper that came out in 2009 um just off the back of a study i think it was 27 
uh, people who took part. Um, so I think it's called the Brain HE Project. So I've had to write this down because it was quite a lot to try and remember. But best resources for attainment and interventions re neurodiversity in higher education. Um, so it was a mix of students. Um, so with different learning differences, and exactly as you said. Um, you know whether they were diagnosed later in life or some of them had found out some of these things early um that actually yeah understanding their strengths and weaknesses and in, as individuals but they all had exactly the same difficult schooling careers so you know as you kind of alluded to so people bullying or teachers kind of singling them out because they couldn't quite understand what was going on but in interestingly i think it was 41 percent um had higher self-esteem and confidence in their abilities after that and I think 73% of them had considerable um, career ambitions with sort of clearer goals compared to someone who wasn't in that cohort, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, as I said, it probably resonates with you. It's similar to that. And I think, well, you're a doctor now, so. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely, but... yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, it's, it, that, that's my story. And, yeah, it really, uh, that study kind of highlights that, yeah. There's a, a person um, I used to work with before who had a learning difference in a different job and they'd kind of mentioned about um, sort of understanding their challenges um, where you don't always get praise externally. So similar to people not understanding where you mentioned that they may not be good at spelling, but they understand the other side. So they might have a you know better spatial awareness, for example, uh, in DT or something like that, uh, design and technology. Um, but yeah, it's about the inner applause and that's something that really stuck with me that um, they went through with their experience that you know you've done something well you're not necessarily going to get the um, the applause or v validation from outside but you have to get that inner fist bump is what uh, was what they would say um, so like many things in life it's kind of as you said just about self-realization yeah definitely yeah and and yeah I, I think just knowing that um, it's not your fault was was like groundbreaking for me um, but yeah you definitely have to build that that it, it, yeah, that's a really good way of saying it. Yeah, like inner 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 applause because um, sometimes you know you know once you know yourself and you know what you're good at and what you're not good at, other people don't know it externally. So you know they don't know the challenge that you're doing, you're you're facing just to do something that they might think is is easy and simple. So yeah, definitely um, you're you're your own you're your own crowd, aren't you? So <laughs> Ben, do you think it's made you more resilient? um yeah definitely definitely i think i approach things differently now yeah i think i approach mm -hmm. things with uh, a confidence that i never had before because um I'm, I'm more like kind of i'm me and i'm proud to be me yeah um and i think then so then if you know if i do face any kind of uh, adversity or, or anything like that it's 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 easier to um accept because I, I am what I am I can only do what I can do and that's that's the way it is like so there's no kind of like, oh I should have done this better or I should have done that better because I just know this is what this is what I can do oh brilliant so Ben obviously being a lecturer my <laughs> next question is is very much from a selfish perspective what do we need to do better so I already know that we have students and have had students in the past that maybe haven't been as well supported or haven't necessarily wanted to disclose um, maybe some of the learning difficulties or the fact that they are 
or would class themselves as uh, neurodivergent. So what is it that we need to do from an education, higher education institute perspective, but also from a clinical perspective? Because I also fully aware that even if you can have adaptations within academia, they aren't always translated to that clinical environment. So what is it from your experience that we need to do better or maybe change or improve? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. And it's, it's the, so I got into the 150 Leaders Programme. Um, and then in that part of that leadership programme, you do a project. And I wanted to do some research on this exact topic of how well do students that have adjustments in the academic stuff how does that work when they go on to placement? Um, so for me personally, it's been uh, I've gone. I've just gone through the system of that. So I've just had a meeting with my uh, placement tutor and my personal tutor, and we've um, discussed the the adjustments and how practical they are. So I had the assessment with um, with the university, and they come up with all these things like I need extra time and I need. Um, not to sit by the window and all these kind of uh, kind of abstract things that would would definitely help. But how do they work in A and E? You know, uh, you know, extra time. Right? Like I'm, so I'm supposed to wander off in the middle of a exam and go and think about things. You know, it's not very practical. So I think it's it's a hard question to answer because there's really no research in the area at the moment. So there's no we haven't really got like a a foundation to to build ideas from at the moment. So there's no we don't really know what I'd like to do is do a study where you look at um, the experiences of, of neurodiverse students on placement and then see what they're what they're what they need and then then test out the adjustments. Um, so I, I've just gone through it and I haven't actually been on placement long enough to give it a proper try. But um, there's, there's some really simple things that you can do um, if people do have a placements, uh, do have adjustments. And that's things like. Uh, you know, thinking about when you're going to question them. Um, so, you know, it's natural that you what you want, you know, you want you got your student and you want to know, you know, test their knowledge, make sure they know um, what they're, why they're doing an exam, what exams did it for. Um, but but there's a time to do that where you know you get situations where there's a patient there and they're about to X-ray the leg and they're positioning the leg and then the the radiographer's coming over and saying, "What are you doing that for?" which way is that going to go you know asking these questions which are very important questions but i find that i can't cope on cope on doing all the different things at once so you know i either cut the patient out and answer the question or i cut them out and look after the patient um so little things like that which uh you know uh, people wouldn't perhaps think about because they're tiny things um but they do they would affect someone's self-esteem over time i think um but i think i think it just needs to be a lot more research in this area and there needs to be working in in forming a environment where people are able to disclose because the research that is available not in, that's that's in other healthcare professions um there's there's lots of the the problems people have is they is they they haven't disclosed so they can't then have adjustments so they don't no one knows there's a problem so they can't then fix it so um, I think there needs to be a lot of work in, in making it an easy place to talk about these kind of things because, um, you know, there might be a stigma. I mean, I don't feel that there's a stigma personally, but I'm very open, uh, open. I live my life like an open book, really, where a lot of people are a bit more conservative. 
are they going to walk into placement on the first day and tell them that they're dyslexic or they've got ADHD or, or, or whatever? And then, you know, and then ask them to then adjust things for them. You know, it's, it takes quite a brave student to do that. And it is, it is, there is all the pressure is on the student to, to do that work. So the adjustments you get at university don't automatically, you know, they don't get a letter on placement about the student. You, you're, you're the person that has to go and tell them and to organise the meetings and to make sure the adjustments are there. So you have to be your own advocate, which for somebody that's, you know, shy on their first placement in their first year, it's going to be a difficult thing to do, isn't it? So there may be some work there as well. I was going to say from a HEI perspective, just being a a student's representative, do you think that would help in terms of, you know, being with a student when they maybe disclose that? And I know with COVID and going digital, there is technically no reason now why you couldn't be accessible from a lecturer perspective and have a student present with a clinical supervisor or a practice educator to have those conversations. Do you think that is something that could help? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, just having that support around them would be really useful. Yeah. Um, and also perhaps having another student, not necessarily a, a, a neurodiverse one, but someone that's been on been in that placement knows the staff. So you you know you've got you've got kind of like a it's not um, a black or white situation. There's more you know there's more grey area, more support. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think more research is needed and that's maybe where you come in. You're yet to do your third year gestation, yeah. haven't you? So there yeah. you go. There's your project uh, yeah. about to be started. And then obviously PhD. They'll be all over you, Ben, to get you to go through that educational pathway. Um, but absolutely. And I know it's something that Janice St. John Matthews highlighted as part of her podcast in terms yeah. of the support that, that people need, but not in a supportive, derogatory way. It is just the fact that, you know, actually disclosing any characteristic or any support that anyone needs within the health service shouldn't be a negative experience. You know, if I had mental health issues, why should I feel worried about having to disclose that to colleagues? It's it's all of that packaged, isn't it, in terms of maybe how we're perceived, but also having the confidence to be able to know that anyone that you talk to within that healthcare setting is going to be supportive, irrespective of what it is that you say. Um, And I'm sure there's deeper societal things that we need to unpick as to why maybe some of those views and stereotypes exist. But I think just having the conversations is really important. Yeah, there's a a, a disability report by the British Medical Association came out uh, a couple of months ago, and they they found that people that had disclosed 77% um, said that they felt that the staff would treat them differently now, negatively. Um, so uh, I think there's, yes, definitely having those conversations because I think a lot of it is probably the perception people have of, of what people are going to think rather than what actually people think. I mean, you know, we're in healthcare or we're in education. Um, and the reason we do that is because we care in people that want to help people, want to support people or want to teach people. So, you know, you're surrounded by people that are, you know, kind, caring people, yet there's still this fear of telling them even, you know, so there's definitely, it's a lot of internal things going on. And like I say, it's the societal thing that, um, you know, it's going to probably going to take a long time to, to unpick and understand. It's, um, and I know on Twitter as well, Ben, you're very open and honest about this. And I did see that you've made uh, like a visual reference book, um, which looked 
pretty cool, to be honest. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 I'm glad that you've uh, noticed my open honesty. I, I, I was actually inspired by Janice St. John, who, who just um, referenced because she had it on her um, on her Twitter bio, like dyslexic, and just reading that, I was like, oh, okay. So you know, it, it kind of uh, normalises, doesn't it? You know, it's it's the more people talk about it, the more it's out there, the more. Um, the more the more normalized it gets yeah so that that was inspiring that's why i kind of put it on my bio and then and yeah and i try and speak about it as much as possible but um yeah the, the reference book was was one of my adjustments actually they i was saying that um often in a busy busy department um we're, we're you know saying in a and x-ray for example um and then we have a patient come in that's uh, a, a lumbar spine and i've got like a couple of minutes and i can quickly look for the book and remind myself a lumbar spine and then as soon as I've done that, there's another patient coming through the door and it's a, a toe. You know, I, I know how to do those. I've, I've revised it. I've done the exam. You know, I've, I've, it, it's in there somewhere. It's just I have trouble um, recording that information quickly. Um, and I find that the books that we use, you know, Clark's and, and et cetera, they're, they're very good, but it's, it's a lot of reading to quickly get access to that information. Um, whereas like, you know, I'm, dyslexic ADHD visual stuff works the best for me and you know, people that aren't neurodiverse people that are neurotypical might find that visual stuff works for them as well so I, I wanted just to do a diagram for each position so I could just quickly turn to it see it go and do it um, and that was that was my my what I wanted to do as one of my adjustments that was suggested to me by my um, practice educator and personal tutor and my practice educator who, who I don't think I think it's neurotypical. She showed me some of her notes from when she studied 20 years ago and she had little diagrams. Um, and I just was like, okay, yeah, so this could be something that I keep and in 20 years' time look back on. Um, and then just being active on Twitter, I, I thought, well, I might as well share these and see if anyone's, you know, if they're useful for anyone else. And I've been really surprised by the amount of people that have commented saying that they're, they're you know, they're useful. Because, you know, that's the thing with neurodiversity and, and uh, you know, ch these little changes and these things you can do to make it more inclusive don't just benefit the people that are neuro neurodivergent, but benefit everyone. So that's what I've, that's what I've learned from that exercise. I was going to say, Ben, we have loads of students with lots of different learning styles, and sometimes as an academic, because we do we fundamentally have lots of education to support us in being able to educate people with different le learning um, styles. But that is that education doesn't always exist within the clinical workforce so it's really hard we as academics are going right you need to support these learners by ensuring they have time to be reflective and they're like a reflective what are you talking about Joe? <laughs> we've got lots of patients i don't understand how we're supposed to kind of adapt to educate and find out about what learning style everyone has so and that's obviously where the role of the practice educator is really important in taking on that additional responsibility. Um, but it is really interesting just how many students have already said to me, oh, Ben's doing some amazing things. And yeah, we should get him to produce some things for us in radiotherapy. So you never know. You might have therapeutic radiography students asking you to produce some booklets for them as well. Um, but I always know I had I had a book and I'm sure all therapeutic radiographers would have as they were students in their pocket, tucked away for years and years and years with every 
little bit of knowledge that they know that they don't use every day but they will need to call upon dose calcs were always my my thing i was like oh let's just pull up my dose calcs back in the day of hand planning and things like that absolutely so yeah ben i think i think you could probably earn a living from producing some of these (laughs) (laughs) if not you could definitely do another phd around it couldn't you There's, there's, there's so much so many research pathways you could go down in this because it's such a huge thing isn't it that's not really been studied before i mean you could do a whole phd just on autism in, you know uh, autistic radiographers you know so yeah there's so much research to be done and that's why i'm i'm really happy to be talking about it you know as many places as i can um not only just to raise awareness but also to try and inspire people to you know take up research in this area because there's a lot of people that have potential to be having a hard time not having the adjustments um so if we all get stuck in we can we can fix it <laughs> and i suppose a very quick caveat would be that you know we talk about personalized care for patients maybe it is now time for personalized sort of looking at exactly as joe said to educating but also when people start working as newly qualified you know what is their learning style when they're on the job because it's it can be quite new if you're not in the same department that you trained in you know, just learning to tell to patients where the toilets are, for example, is a certain way I always had to remember because I know I just couldn't find them. So, <laughs> but um, I suppose it comes on just coming on quite nicely to you, Ben. That um, I know you've just got some of the support ideas and stuff. But do you have some top tips for sort of patients, students, healthcare professionals um, that are listening? Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, just a couple of things jumped out at me. Um, I think firstly is is have a think about your own style and your own way that you learn um because there's so much of this of neurodiversity is is undiagnosed um and a lot of that I think is by people not knowing what 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 to look for because especially for me i i you just you are how you are and that's all you've always been and you don't really consider how that would appear somewhere else so you just think that this is normal for you, but is it normal for everyone else? And if you're working 10 times harder than everyone else to do the same things, then um, it might be worth looking into, uh, you know, your own your own uh, approach, your own learning. So that would be a tip is to think about your own thing. But also then for, for radiographers and um, healthcare professionals and educators is to think, you know, a bit of a challenge, like think about how you support your staff and students that are, neurodivergent you know is it something you think about is it something that you um are, are keen on you know, progressing or is it something that you've never thought about till now um and you know what what can you do to make sure that you're neurodivergent inclusive oh perfect ben um some really good advice there and i really do hope that people uh, take that on board i uh I absolutely know this is not the last we see or hear of you, Ben, at all. I know that there are great things to come of your future and we're really glad that you're part of the radiography profession and hopefully take this forward and do lots of research. So thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been me, Joe McNamara, and my co-host, Naaman Jolka-Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to the resources and also literature discussed within the podcast. To receive your accredited CPD digital badge, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. 
Our next guest to feature will be Dr Richard Simcock, um, who is on the Chief Medical Officers team at Macmillan. So thank you ever so much for listening. Take care and good night. Thank you.